Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, the Amazon River in South America is by far the largest river in the world. It's not the longest river in the world, that would be the Nile River, but the Amazon River is certainly the largest river in the world in terms of volume. And in fact, when Jeff Bezos, you ever heard of Jeff Bezos before? I believe I pronounced his last name correctly. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com. Well, when he founded that online retail store, he decided to name it after the Amazon River because he envisioned his company one day being large like the Amazon River. The mouth of the Amazon is more than 200 miles across. It's massive in size. In fact, so much water comes through the Amazon that it's possible to detect its current hundreds of miles out in the ocean. But one irony of pre-modern navigation is that sailors often died for lack of water. Caught in the windless waters of the South Atlantic, uh, these sailors were adrift, they were helpless, they were dying of thirst, thinking that the only available water to them was the salt water of the ocean. And so sometimes other sailors from South America who knew the area well, they would see these men, these sailors in their ship, and they, would, they could tell that they were in distress and that they were upset that something was going on, and they would call out to them, well, what's the problem? What's the issue? How can we help you? And they would respond back, please give us some water. We're dying of thirst over here. And the sailors would say, simply drop your buckets. You are in the mouth of the mighty Amazon River. Well, folks, imagine being surrounded by all that fresh water and yet dying of thirst. That's ironic, isn't it? But if you think that's ironic, that irony pales in comparison to an irony that we're going to look carefully at today. And that would be that Jesus, the Son of God, who spent his ministry healing people, casting out demons, bringing hope and peace and restoration. Jesus was condemned to death by the very people who represented God at that time. Uh, we're in the midst of a sermon series here at Asbury for Lent. Uh, Lent is the season that takes us into Easter. Well, we're in the midst of a sermon series here at Asbury called 24 Hours That Changed the World. 24 Hours That Changed the World. Uh, this series is based on a book of the same name by Adam Hamilton, who's a pastor out in Kansas. And in these sermons, in these messages, uh, we are examining the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life, trying to understand, trying to wrap our minds around the events that happened during those 24 hours, and how these events not only changed the course of human history forever, but also how these events continue to inspire and shape us today. Now, we're in week three of the sermon series. It's a seven-part series. And just to catch us up, get us all on the same page, um, last Sunday we talked about how on Thursday of Holy Week, Holy Week is the last week of Jesus' earthly life, while on Thursday of Holy Week, after the Passover meal was over, uh, Judas, one of the disciples, he got up from the table and he went to go find the religious authorities because Judas had agreed on Wednesday of that week to betray Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. 
Well, after Judas left and after the meal was over, Jesus went with the other 11 disciples. They left the upper room and they went to a garden. What's that garden called? Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is a grove of olive trees that sits at the base of the Mount of Olives in the Kidron Valley, which is a part of Jerusalem. And when Jesus was in the holy city, he would often go to this place to pray, to visit, to connect with God. And yet, as we saw last time, Gethsemane became a place of great struggle for Jesus. It's in Gethsemane that the disciples fall asleep instead of staying away, keeping alert. It's in Gethsemane that Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside, and he reveals how he's truly feeling. He says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And finally, it's in Gethsemane that Jesus quite literally falls on the ground, and he begs God, he pleads with God to let the awful hour awaiting him pass him by. And yet in the end, and we talked about this last time, Jesus humbly submits himself to the Father's will. Even while knowing what's to come, that he's going to be crucified, Jesus remains obedient to God's plan. Well, afterwards, uh, Mark tells us in his gospel, and as a reminder, we're primarily drawing from the gospel of Mark in the sermon series. Uh, there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of which document the story of Jesus. But in this sermon series, we're primarily drawing from Mark. This is what Mark writes in chapter 14, verse 43, it says, and immediately, and by the way, as an aside, Mark loves the word immediately. I think it shows up around 40 times in his gospel. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priest, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. Now, folks, bear in mind that the armed men whom Judas brings are not Roman authorities. These are not Roman authorities. These are temple guards who work for the religious establishment. They have been sent by the religious authorities because the crime of which Jesus is allegedly guilty is a religious crime. It's going to become a political crime by the time he goes before Pontius Pilate, but at this point, it's a religious crime. He claims to be the Son of God. This would have been considered blasphemy. Also keep in mind, that it's late at night when these soldiers come. It's probably at least midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning. And so it's dark and it's hard to see. And it's difficult for these soldiers to properly distinguish Jesus from the other disciples. So the way that Judas identifies Jesus to them is with what? A kiss. This is from Mark 14, verse 44. The traitor Judas had given them, that would be the arresting officers, a pre-arranged signal. In other words, he set all this up in advance. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. We talked about irony at the beginning of the sermon, and we're going to talk more about irony in a few moments, but the irony here spills out, doesn't it? A kiss is a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of, of affection and love and devotion and loyalty. Judas, on the other hand, turns it into an act of betrayal and treachery. Well, no sooner does Judas kiss Jesus that this fight breaks out between the disciples and the men making the arrest. In fact, Peter even goes so far as to pull out his sword and he slashes off the ear of one of the men, the high priest's servant. 
Now, Mark doesn't tell us this in his gospel, but Luke reminds us that Jesus picks up the man's ear and he heals him. In fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that this is the last recorded miracle right before Jesus is crucified. And so even as he's being arrested, Jesus never stops being compassionate, never stops being full of love and grace. Well then, once Jesus is led away, this is what happens next. This is from Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. Uh, This is the text that we're going to focus on this morning. They took Jesus to the high priest's home, where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Inside, the leading priest and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against them, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent. They made no reply. Then the high priest asked them, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his whore and said, Why do we need other witnesses? You have heard all his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. Then some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. Mark writes here that once Jesus is in custody, the religious leaders immediately call a meeting of the high council, also called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin 2,000 years ago was essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. Uh, The Sanhedrin was composed of 71 elders, and these elders were considered to be the most godly, God-fearing, God-honoring, the wisest men of the time. Now, the idea for the Sanhedrin comes from the Old Testament book of Numbers. Uh, To set the context, um, in the book of Numbers, the nation of Israel, uh, God's people, they've come out of Egypt where they were enslaved. They're about to go into the promised land. Moses is going to pass away pretty soon. And so, but Moses at this point, he's leading the people of Israel. He's the primary leader, but it's getting to be a lot for him. Uh, He's taking the yoke of the people all upon himself. And so what God does is God tells Moses to take 70 elders, and these 70 elders, along with Moses himself, so 70 elders plus Moses, that would be 71, these 71 people are to rule the nation of Israel on God's behalf. This is from Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. And again, this is where the idea of the Sanhedrin comes from. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you, that is upon Moses, he's talking to Moses, and I will put the spirit upon them also. 
they will bear the burden of the people along with you. So you will not have to carry it alone. Now, in Jesus' day, Rome ruled over political affairs. Anything that involved politics, Rome was in charge of that. The Sanhedrin ruled over religious affairs. The Sanhedrin controlled the temple along with all the religious courts. And the person who was in charge of the Sanhedrin was the high priest. Now, Mark doesn't tell us his name, but Matthew does. Do you remember what his name was? Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest from about A.D. 18, so when Jesus was a teenager, all the way to A.D. 36, shortly after he was crucified. Caiaphas was the leading religious figure. And by the way, maybe you noticed that the place where Jesus is taken to, where the Sanhedrin puts him on trial, is actually the high priest's home, Caiaphas' house. This is what it says, Mark 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest's home, where the leading priest, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Uh, today, uh, there is a church built on top of the ruins where archaeologists believe the high priest's home stood. In fact, if you ever get the chance to visit the Holy Land, and I had the opportunity to go there uh, seven years ago in 2016, um, you can actually see this place. And when you're there, you can also see the dungeon where we believe that Jesus was kept. Uh, this dungeon, and we got a picture of it up here on the monitor, this dungeon or this prison cell was made out of a cistern, which of course is an ancient way of storing water. And we believe that Jesus was lowered through a hole uh, at the top of the dungeon. Uh, we have this in the next picture. He was lowered by, uh, by rope into this hole and put in that dungeon twice. First, as he was awaiting trial by the Sanhedrin, and then he was put in there again once they condemned him and he was awaiting transport to Pontius Pilate. And it's worth wondering if when Jesus was in this dungeon, far below ground, that he prayed the words of Psalm 88. Listen to what it says. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. For my life is full of troubles, and death draws near. I am as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. As he was in that dungeon, Jesus was in the pit. He was literally in the pit, but figuratively he was in the pit too. Have you ever been there before? You ever been in a situation that you felt powerless to get out of? A situation that was so bad, it just kept consuming you. Where you, folded, where you felt as if the ground was pulled out from beneath you and the world was collapsing all around you. I have. 2015 is a year that will always stand out to me because it was simultaneously a great year, wonderful year, but then it was also a really difficult year. Let me explain. At the beginning part of 2015, in fact, in January of that year, um, I was approved for full ordination as a United Methodist pastor, completing the candidacy process. 
a process that I had started when I was in high school. So I was excited about that. And then also a few months later, I got a phone call from my district superintendent letting me know that I was being appointed as a senior pastor of a new congregation, a church that was doing pretty innovative things in our conference. And so I was looking forward to being a part of that, and I was really humbled to have been considered to go there. And then to top it all off, in July of 2015, I met Amanda, the person who would later become my wife. And folks, I know you're not going to you're going to not find this hard to believe, but I knew right away when I met Amanda, I was going to marry her. Uh, I knew when I had my first date with her on July 10th of 2015, I was on my last first date. I knew I was going to spend my, the rest of my life with her. Things were going really well. Felt like I was on top of the world. Then on July 15th, things started to change. Two weeks after I got to that new church, Five days after I had had my first date with Amanda, I got a phone call from my father. He was at the emergency room with my mom. He said, it's not looking good. Your mother has cancer. It's stage four. It's metastasized. It's gone to her liver. I was devastated. I thought to myself, well, I can't lose my mom. I understand that we all lose our parents at some point, but I'm in my 20s. My mom's in her 50s. She's so young. She hasn't seen me get married. She hasn't seen me have children. And my mom was the biggest supporter of my call to pastoral ministry. The last picture I have with her was taken at annual conference of 2015 in Daytona Beach, Florida at Bethune-Cookman University. Uh, after I was ordained, we took a picture there. She's smiling from ear to ear. She was in the ICU for the next month. She passed away on August 13th of 2015. I was trying to process everything that had just happened so quickly. And then when I got back from her funeral, things only got more difficult. I'm not going to get into all the details, but I encountered some leadership, ministerial challenges, that frankly just discouraged me, exhausted me. At times I began to question God's call in my life to pastoral ministry. I keep a prayer journal. I've kept a prayer journal for the past 10 years, since 2013. Well, at one point, I wrote these words in my prayer journal. This was my prayer to God. Lord, I'm not sure how much longer I can do this. I don't know how much more I can take. I'm not good enough. I'm not adequate enough. Help me, Lord. If it were not for Amanda some wonderful mentors, amazing lay people, God's grace. I don't know how I would have made it out of that season. I was in the pit. The year started out really great, but then it got hard. Talk about a change of circumstances. But if we think about it, Jesus went through a change of circumstances, didn't he? Remember, he had come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding a donkey. People were waving palm branches. They were clapping. They were cheering. They were excited. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now here he is five days later in a dungeon on trial for his life, betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. Now it's worth pointing out that the Sanhedrin normally met during the day in the temple courts, not in the high priest's home at nighttime. And they never met during religious festivals. 
So the fact that they were meeting so late at night in Caiaphas' home during the festival of unleavened bread, this incredibly holy festival, highlights how unusual the proceeding was and the secrecy that they felt necessary in dealing with Jesus. And as we mentioned earlier, this whole trial is ironic. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.19, he says, In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul doesn't say that some of God was in Jesus or a lot of God was in Jesus. He says, In Jesus, the entirety of God was pleased to dwell. And yet it wasn't sinners, quote-unquote, who put God on trial. It was the religious authorities. How could this happen? How could 71 men devoted to God do what these men did? There are a lot of different theories floating out there. But I think one of the main reasons, and Adam Hamilton highlights this in his book, one of the main reasons is fear. Fear. These men were threatened by Jesus because Jesus threatened the social order and everything that they knew and everything that they had grown accustomed to. They, they saw the miracles that he preached. They saw the way the, the crowds flocked to him. They saw the demons that he cast out. They heard the people when they said, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Even the evil spirits obey him? Jesus threatened the social order and everything that they knew, everything that they had grown accustomed to, and he also called them out for their hypocrisy and their bad behavior. He called them whitewashed tombs at one point. This made them deeply, deeply afraid. You know, the truth is, all of us as human beings are born with the capacity for fear, aren't we? doesn't matter who you are, what your background is. If you're a human being, you are born with the capacity for fear. Now, the truth is, Fear could be a really good thing. Fear could be a really appropriate thing. Fear could help us get out of a dangerous situation. For example, if you're in the middle of the street and there's a car coming and the car's getting close to you, hopefully the fear encourages you to get out of the way from this moving vehicle. But here's the other truth. Because our fear instinct is tainted by sin, left unchecked, fear can make us do disastrous and monstrous things. We see this time and again in human history. In the year 1933, in his inaugural address to our nation, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, we have nothing to fear except one, fear itself. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. But ironically, talking about irony, ironically during his presidency, our nation did the unthinkable. After Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7, 1941, in the beginning part of 1942, our government rounded up Japanese persons who had no connection to what happened at Pearl Harbor and put them in detention camps across the country. Nearly 120,000 Japanese persons, many of whom were American citizens with constitutional rights, were put inside those camps. And it wasn't until the 1980s, 40 years later, that the government apologized. For that monstrous act. We let fear control us. Think about those times in your own life where you have let fear control you. Was it good? Was it helpful? Was it beneficial? Probably not. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle John 
who says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love does what? It drives out fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out, casts out, expels fear. If only the members of the Sanhedrin had allowed God's perfect love to cast out the fear in them. But instead, motivated by their own self-preservation, they chose to hate. They bore false witness against Jesus, violating the Ten Commandments. The Ninth Commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness. They bore false witness. They accused Jesus of saying things that Jesus never said. They even went so far as to line up false witnesses against Jesus. Now, Jewish law was clear. In order to convict somebody of a crime, there needed to be at least two or three witnesses. But even these false witnesses that they put in place they couldn't get their story straight. Their testimony was all over the place. So finally, Caiaphas, he gets frustrated and upset, and he asks Jesus point blank, he says, are you the Messiah? Shoot us straight. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, Jesus has a choice. He can say no, and then the trial's over. He's off the hook. They release him. But if he says yes, he'll be convicted of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death according to the law of Moses. Notice the contrast. The religious authorities are driven by fear. Jesus doesn't have one ounce of fear in him. Instead, even while shackled, even while speaking in front of 71 people, Jesus courageously speaks truth to power. This is what he says, Mark 14, verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, folks, in this response, and we don't have time to get into all the details because you probably want to have lunch at some point today, but in this response, listen, Jesus is doing far more than offering a simple yes to Caiaphas' question. In this response, Jesus is referring to three Old Testament allusions from the book of Exodus, the book of Daniel, and the book of Psalms, all of which confirm that Jesus believes himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God. So upon hearing this, what does Caiaphas do? He just rips his clothing. We've said this before, Jewish culture is very visual. Think about a Jewish wedding where the bride and the groom stomp on a piece of glass. Uh, the purpose of that is because uh, when you get married, marriages can fall apart, so you should enter marriage with trepidation. Marriages can be broken. Well, Jewish culture is visual. The high priest rips his clothing to show his horror and his outrage and his disgust. And then the entire council condemns Jesus to death. This is verse 64 and verse 65. You have heard all his blasphemy. Again, that's the crime of which he's been convicted. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. Then some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists, prophesied to us, they jeered, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. It's one of the greatest ironies of human history. Jesus is condemned by the very people who represented God. And that they too, like us, were the same people that he came to save. Jesus came to save the very people who were harming him, who had harmed him. Father Rene Robert was a Catholic priest 
who devoted his life to the church. But then tragically, in 2016, Father Robert was murdered. And get this, he was murdered by the very man that he was trying so desperately to help. This man was a repeat offender. He had been in and out of prison. And for the past month, Father Robert had been trying to help this man get back on his feet. Well, one day the man asked Father Robert for a ride in his car. Father Robert was kind enough to give the man a ride. But then the man suddenly abducted the priest and he murdered him. Well, during the trial, after he was arrested and imprisoned, during the trial, the prosecution was pushing for the death penalty. But then the prosecutor came across a declaration of life document that Father Robert had apparently signed and notarized 22 years earlier. In this document, he specifically stated, and by the way, Father Robert, as a priest, he had devoted his life to working with society's most troubled people, working with society's most troubled people. He knew the potential risk involved in that kind of ministry. And so in this Declaration of Life document that, again, he had signed and notarized two decades earlier, he specifically said, should I ever be murdered, I want my killer to be shown mercy and to be spared from the death penalty. And so consequently, this man who murdered him was spared from the death penalty. Father Robert found a way to help the man who had murdered him. Jesus offers salvation to everybody, even to those who condemned him. Folks, the truth is, all of us who are sinners, and we're all sinners, as Scripture says, all of us who are sinners played a role in the execution of Jesus. But the other truth is, because of God's grace, we are recipients of the salvation that Jesus' death makes possible. So never for a moment, never for a single moment, doubt God's love for you. Even as his own son was being condemned, you were on God's mind. All of us were. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that even when we find ourselves in the pit, and I imagine all of us have been there, in fact, maybe some of us are there right now, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, you never abandon us, your love holds us close. Father, we recognize that even as your own son was in the pit, that you were right there with him. So God, we thank you for that truth today. Thank you also that Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly endured this trial and also his trial by Pontius Pilate so that we might be recipients of salvation, forgiveness of sin, and new life. We in no way deserve these wonderful things. And yet, God, you give these things to us out of your economy of grace. We praise you for that. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us so that indeed we might be the disciples of Jesus Christ that you long for us to be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.